Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in once more to listen to another one of our podcasts. Um, and today I've got the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Teresa Muller from her her residence in New York, or as close to New York as is. Um, we've known Teresa for some time. She's come with some brilliant films uh, ranging from really thought-provoking documentaries, comedies, and a latest vignette or, or film is Can't Stop the Sun From Shining. Uh, we may not necessarily be talking about that solely, but thank you very much for joining us, Teresa, from, from the US. Thank um, you. No, you're more than welcome. We touched upon it a moment ago. Obviously, we've all been locked down with COVID. What people, a lot of people won't realise is that Teresa and I have stayed in contact via WhatsApp, as I, I have with other filmmakers based in the US. Before we get on to your career, Teresa, can you just give us an idea of how things have been since kind of March? How are you feeling? How your family, how Paul is? And yeah, the general state of affairs uh, over on the East Coast? Yeah, it, unfortunately, Paul and I are well and uh, within the circumstances because New York was the hot spot for COVID. So uh, we've been quite concerned and uh, we know, of course, some people that are friends or family members that uh, have had the illness, but fortunately they are okay now. Thank goodness for that. Yes, I mean... Perhaps there is uh, one of the ladies from the film that I made had a double pneumonia. And although she tested negative, it might have been quite as well pneumonia secondary to COVID. Oh, Uh, she passed away. I've been also saddened because two other women of my film have passed away. Oh, no. Yes, the daughter, the one oh, almost 106, and uh, this past Sunday, 97-year-old. Oh. So, uh, yeah, within a period of two months, three of, of the ladies are on the other side. Oh, that's but, so sad. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite sad. But uh, other than that, as they asked Mrs. Lincoln after, uh, after they shot her uh, husband in the theater, other than that, Mr. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> so other, other than that, uh, everything is fine here. As you probably know, we are having uh, political issues, not just uh, the pandemic, but the viral disorder taking place within the president's head. Yes, uh, yes. And uh, that's another virus that is uh, hard to eradicate. But I think uh, we are hopeful that, that it will be eradicated for good and that we can have another kind of government because this feels like a dictatorship here. But, Teresa, apparently if you, if you drink or inject disinfectant, that will cure it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we should, uh, we should prepare gallons and gallons for him to swallow soon. <laughs> I would imagine as you're a doctor, you'd probably have a much better understanding of... <laughs> The medical situation but you know um although i've got to be neutral in these things i'll just say that i totally agree with you the guy is an absolute buffoon and the scenery is kicked out the better so that's my take on it yeah obviously i know you're originally from argentina and you qualified as a uh, as well it's actually your gynecologist of course but how did this all start and, and where did it all start uh, away from the uh, medical career well, it started after I retired from my practice in obstetrics and gynecology. 
and studying Italian in Florence with uh, staying in a house of this couple who were very interested in art and music. They uh, expressed their feelings about going to Argentina uh, themselves, but that it was too far for them and too expensive. They wanted to see Buenos Aires, where I was born. So I decided to uh, go uh, to Buenos Aires and buy a DVD for them, showing them uh, the city. But uh, when I went to Buenos Aires, I uh, was looking for such DVD, and the only thing I could find was just only tangos or only food. I really wanted to show them the city that I had known from being born there and being there for 23 years of my life. So I decided that I uh, would do it myself. And I'd never done this before. So I hired, uh, I found through the internet um, a great photographer. And uh, then I started asking permission to different museums, galleries, the artists that I knew to get permission from uh, their places to visit them. And uh, so I uh, uh, went uh, for a trip in uh, 2009 and I met a uh, photographer and I uh, told him exactly what my plans were. And over a period of two weeks, we walked around uh, the entire city and uh, we entered different museums and uh, art galleries and we did... Uh, entire uh, uh, shoot. I had more than a hundred hours of footage. I went back in December to edit uh, the studio there. It was my first time uh, doing this, so it was pretty difficult for me to extract and edit and cut uh, scenes that I thought they were interesting. Then the final product of the first time for almost four hours in length, so it became uh, four chapters. This is flying on the wings of time, isn't it? This is your original, yeah. your original work yeah. that then became a trilogy, of course. <laughs> But I'm guessing making the films became the passion then. You, you loved doing it, and then obviously that led on to yeah. other things. But I realized that now, after this first story was told, I wanted to tell other stories. My mother always liked to tell stories to me. Her sister, my aunt, also always told stories to me. So maybe it's in I wanted to tell stories through the camera lens. Now, I, I often say to filmmakers, you know, that have start made films at a certain point in their life, would you have liked to have made them earlier? But then, of course, what I've suddenly realised is it's much easier because of digit digital technology. So I didn't really think about that. But if a filmmaker had wanted to make films in, say, the, the 1980s, it would be much more difficult than it is now because everything's cheaper and it's shrunk and the yeah. quality is so much better, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Of course, uh, we can't turn back the clock I don't know what would have happened then. It is easier. Obstacles haven't been always that much of a barrier for me because I believe that when you want something, you want it bad enough, you're going to do it. Yes. No matter how hard 
it is. Yes, I agree. So, uh, when I sat down uh, with one of the editors before I had the movie shot, she said, it's a lot of work. I said, I know I'm not afraid of hard work. I don't see that as an obstacle for me. Uh, hard work is never uh, a problem because I'm willing to, to do it. But I think you're right. In uh, near 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if I wanted to do the same, it would have been a lot harder. Just reading a bio, I was reading a bio yesterday about Woody Allen, yes. um, or rather his filmmaking. And I was thinking about Annie Hall and Manhattan. The thing that struck me was, um, because often people remember Annie Hall and Manhattan, or particularly Manhattan, I suppose, right. with the scenes in it, the actual cinematography in it, obviously it looks beautiful because yeah. he's in love with you, New York. Buenos Aires is your homeland, I understand that. And of course, it's your your first love, of course. But it'd be interesting if you'd ever created a trilogy about New York as a, as a counterpoint. <laughs> Yes, I thought about, you know, when I think about, uh, I had an interview, I think you listened to on a radio yeah. uh, with Leonard Lopez That's it. Uh, this past March in Brooklyn. Yeah. So when I went back, I said, uh-uh, this sounds like, you know, another review of my past in New York. Yeah. Because it's been many years now and Brooklyn is no longer what it used to be in terms of architecture and in terms of living in that area because it was still uh, not very safe but it's safer than when i was living there in 1970s so i did think about it uh, everything has changed in brooklyn and manhattan and all the other boroughs so it did cross my mind but uh, there are other uh, thoughts that have crossed my mind as well. So I'm engaged in, uh, in different uh, projects or thought processes of uh, incoming, upcoming uh, films. But I have considered a second uh, review of a past, you know, like a Proustian kind of uh, feeling. Um, recherche of Pampereau, going back with nostalgia to my past in uh, in New York. Yeah, I think it would be a lovely counterpoint, particularly the way you captured the the artwork is the thing that I remember most about your trilogy, and it'd be interesting yeah. to see how you'd turn that to New York. I suppose the problem is very much like London now. Money, new money's come in, and the, a lot of the cities become gentrified. And the the, the downside is that. Um, a lot of the buildings that once were, I'm sure it's the same in, in New York, yes, have now yes. gone, of course. So that's the sadness behind it. You know, and that... uh, some are, yes, some are gone and some have been converted from some other uh, factories have been converted into condominiums. So preserving some of the architectural design, a building on top of a previous structure or renovating the old structure to uh, fit it into studios or apartments or lofts. Dare to say that what has been torn down in uh, New York is not the same as what has been torn down in Buenos Aires. Right, okay. Because uh, most of the places, and one of them that has been, at least in New York, preserved, thank God, is Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Because 
developers wanted to turn it uh, into rubble. Oh, God. And, uh, and that would have been a very, very sad story for an art and music institution, as it's Carnegie Hall. We, I think it's the, the, one of the most beautiful halls in this country, thanks to Isaac Stern. It's still alive and it has been renovated, but uh, with all its glory and its beauty. Oh my goodness, I mean, that would be like tearing down the Albert Hall or the, the old Vic in London. I mean, that would be absolute uproar and it would be a similar situation. I mean, you have to, of course, preserve these wonderful buildings. So if we can talk very briefly about how you switch from, because this fascinates me, um, when you've made, done the original um, trilogy, Amuses the Mountain, um, and Can't Stop the Sun from Shining and many other documentaries. But how do you switch between those, which we'll get onto in a moment, how do you switch from those to making a short comedy like Now Boarding? Because the two are so diametrically opposite. And I'm sure you're maybe you're writing for the documentaries. I don't know how you do a, perhaps you put the story together. But it's, it's massively different, isn't it? It's a completely different skill set required. But how do you swap that over? It's like switching from crying to happiness. <laughs> I can I have inner switches in my brain so if I am very sad and I must uh, turn off sadness for some reason I do that what happened with the comedies where I do have a sense of humor that is very subtle and maybe people can't pick it up mm. and some sense of uh, self-deprecation so these uh, comedies came about uh, because of a reality, a reality that led me to feel very angry about what was happening to me and to others in the world of this particular case, in the world of airports. So instead of expressing anger, I switched that to comedy. And you know, when, when there is comedy, when you make a joke, Behind the joke, there might be something real. Yes. Uh, like Freud talked about that in his uh, book, The Joke. So behind the joke, there could be many times truth. The indignities that I was going through, I was going through in the airport, could be turned into some funny story. And uh, I have a penchant for jokes about myself, even. <laughs> So that's how I switched from one thing to another one. You could do a sequel of the sequel, because I know it's been a sequel, but I know what people won't know is it's not amusing, but it could be amusing, where I know you tried to get to our festivals and you got on the, I don't know, your plane was delayed or you got on the wrong plane, I can't remember, but I just wondered yeah. if that could not be like almost like a, a comedic spin to that, you see. Oh, of course, I, uh, I, can, I, can do, I can do that. The idea has to grasp me rather than me going after uh, sometimes. Actually, the last incident I had was when I was coming back from Britain, from my UK, your friend, last festival, yeah. in February. Yeah. I was ready to board, very ready. <laughs> but first of all, they said, uh, when I went to board, they said that you have to be checked again. And so I said, all right. I said, I already uh, checked twice. She said, do you need one more time? I went to the place where they asked me to go. Yeah. And then I had to wait in line because there were about eight other people before me no, to be checked personally. And so I, they asked me to open my carry-on. 
and uh, they asked me to carry, uh, I had two carry-ons, so back, back, and my carry-on. Yeah. Uh, and every time they put this device that rings a bell, yeah. uh, it said, oh, you can't, you can't, there is something that is in your, in your case that uh, is ringing. So I opened the case at least 10 times, and they took everything out, and the device was still ringing. So then they had to call another person who was above a manager. Yeah. So the manager came and checked it again and uh, kept saying that I had something. And uh, I had nothing except anger. Maybe my <laughs> anger was ringing. Maybe your anger is... Oh, dear. Okay, well, there you go. There's a film there you mentioned about the interview for Can't Stop the Sun from Shining. And for me, personally, this is my favourite film of yours. I, I love the way that you'd put this together with this wonderful uh, quadrilogy of story. Well, yeah, yeah, quadrilogy. I mean, it's, it's four amazing women that you filmed over a period of time and put, put, obviously put this into a documentary. Can you just tell us how this came about and how you found these amazing women? I'll just read, before you go, I'll just read the... A quick intro here. This is from Film Freeway and it says a documentary about four centenarian and almost centenarian women living in New York who unravel their courage, strength and zest for life in unique and inspiring ways. An homage to ageing without regrets. Fantastic. I was always interested in older people. I uh, had an affinity in caring. So I, I had a tremendous affinity and I also thought that uh, in, in our life, in this, uh, as, as we get older, and a lot older than a century ago, there is a sense of prejudice against older people, yeah. that older people can't work, that older people can be creative. There is definitely ageism. I've always been opposed to any uh, way of discrimination, be it race, be it gender, be it age. So I thought that since ageism is a growing concern in our planet, I should seek for uh, individuals that can show that aging is not so terrible and that we can all be productive and that in the economy world, we should not erase people who are even after 50 years of age from from working and doing what is possibly a good contribution to society and to the world. Absolutely. For example, we have now a Dr. Fauci, who is the uh, director of the Department of Infectious Diseases yeah. in this country, yeah. and he is 79. He can do something good and excellent. And there are many other people who can be active and uh, contribute to our society, even if they are older, biologically speaking, because age is only a number. Absolutely. It's not just that. I mean, there are people who are 30 or 40 or 20 years old who act like if they were 150. <laughs> and uh, so it's true. Yeah, I know, uh, absolutely. So that was the message that I wanted to impart, that ageism is a terrible condition, prejudice, that uh, we should fight against, like we fight against gender equality, like we, we have fight uh, for, for all other sociological issues. How I found these women, 
Uh, one I knew from uh, 1983. Another one, the pianist I got from the sound editor for my previous films, uh, for this one, who knows a lot of people in the music world. Yeah. And uh, so he had a series of other people, uh, and I just kept the pianist who was uh, the last uh, student of Rachmaninoff. She's incredible. And the other, yeah, she is. She is. She's now, since March, she is now stuck in San Francisco because she went there to give master classes in March, and she was on her way to Japan to give concerts on behalf of typhoon victims. But because of COVID, she couldn't go. So she didn't come back to New York where she lives, in New York City. She's been staying in March with one of her piano students. Oh <laughs> and uh, I talked to her and she's fine. She practices, uh, they have a piano course in the house. So she practices piano and she goes for walks. And uh, yeah, and she's staying there until she can return to New York. Because now New York has uh, banned travelers coming from other hotspot areas from COVID. So she cannot come back to New York City because now California has the hotspot. Right. Did you say that she was the last student of Rachmaninoff? Yes, she was. My goodness, what an accomplishment. Because He's one of my favorite uh, composers. Yes. I mean, but yes. to actually be, be that person is what an incredible story. I know. It's, uh, she, you know, she had uh, actually, she studied in the Conservatory of Paris uh, piano, and she told me one of her teachers was Ravel. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, uh, but she didn't like to play her stuff because there were a lot of black keys on the piano that she had to play, and it was quite difficult. But look, she was born 95 years ago, so Rabbit was still uh, very alive and well and teaching uh, in the conservatory. Well, I mean, how so incredible is that? Uh, so she would have known, personally known, Ravel and Rachmaninoff. I mean, that's like a who's yes. who of composers. Yes, yes, she knew them. And uh, with Rachmaninoff, she even visited him when she was seven. Uh, she was, uh, she was, uh, visited him at this Villa Majestique in Paris. Uh, where her, you know, Ruth's father took her there. And uh, she always says how he looked at her and she was very short. She's still very short, but he was very, very, very tall with big hands. Yes. And when he saw her at the door of her house, he said to the father, Ruth's father, you mean that? That plays the piano because <laughs> she was so little. So, uh, yeah, amazing. He also uh, met uh, 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 and spoke to uh, Rubinstein, Arthur Rubinstein. Wow. Uh, who told her she had great hands for a pianist. And uh, she remembered that for the rest of her life. Oh, that's lovely. That's really, really lovely. Yeah. Because I, whenever I think of Rachmaninoff, I always think of, I don't know if you've seen the film, Summer in Time, the Christopher Reeve film, um, uh -huh. Jane Seymour. And there's a piece, um, this theme of uh, Paganini. I can't remember now, but there's a lovely piece in there. Um, yes. And uh, that's one of my favourite pieces of music. And I always think yes. of that whenever I think of it. Sorry, I'm, I'm going off a tangent. So you found these four wonderful women. No, okay. no you, you found these four wonderful women. And, yes. and they've all got the most unique stories to tell as well. Uh, so now I'm looking for men. <laughs> really? Yeah, I have uh, lined up. Uh, I, I think I have a very good connection 
actually through a friend of Ruth the pianist. This other woman is amazing, but uh, she's been connecting me with a composer who lives in music composer who lives in Estonia. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jacques Dubois, a famous uh, dancer here. They're in their 80s, mm. but uh, they are very striking uh, and they have amazing history. So I think that. Uh, uh, I, if they agree to be interviewed, I'll do I'll do that. And mm. I have another man who I already interviewed but didn't do the shooting yet, who is a cellist who is a hundred years old. And I have also a gynecologist uh, who is ninety five and is still practicing. So if you'd have had if you'd have had the opportunity when you were thinking about going into medicine. To, to go into filmmaking with all the tools you've got now. So I know that's impossible because that's that's just the way it is now. The other things things have evolved. But let's just for a moment just um, imagine a time that we go back. The, the digital tools that you have now were available then. So yeah. th- you could have chosen a path to be either a filmmaker or going to medicine. Would you have still taken the same path? I think so. I think that yeah, I, I my love for medicine has been very intense, and I uh, since we are in the world of imagination, of course, I can say that maybe I would have done both because having practiced my specialty, I have a, a tremendous amount of memories of great memories that I would I would want to. I would want to repeat if it was possible. And uh, uh, maybe I would have done something parallel in the world of my field. Maybe I would have uh, interviewed uh, patients. Maybe I would have done something alongside my medical career. But, uh, you know, I I always had an interest in uh, photography. Yes. But uh, even that, it was easier to do than uh, a parallel to my career of a a doctor. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a person of planning too far in advance, you know. So it wasn't like I wanted to be a doctor when I was five years old. And there was no one in my family that was a doctor. So when I went to medical school... I was 16, 17, so I decided maybe at two, three years before that I wanted to do this. Oh, that's amazing. So I was maybe about 13 years old when I decided I wanted to uh, go into medical school. Oh, (laughs) We spoke to another filmmaker yesterday, or a group of filmmakers, and we put them on the spot, and I'm going to ask you the same question, I'm afraid, to wrap things up. Dan and I have been doing podcasts where we've had our five favourite films, and... It was quite easy for me to choose number one. Can you tell me what your favourite film is? Uh, of what I did? No, as in ever. Any film you've ever you've ever seen. Oh, any uh, oh, any film that I have ever seen? Yes. Oh, what? One. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... Um... Uh, no, it's all right. I can tell you, uh, I mean, perhaps the story of uh, Joan d'Arc... Uh, a silent film from the 1920s that has blown my mind away. But also uh, Sergei Eisenstein, Alexander Nevsky. Wow, that's a good choice. So not the battleship Potemkin. Yes, the the other one was the uh, yes, uh, yes, the Potemkin. 
both of them, Alexander Nevsky and Potemkin, were uh, two glorious films of silent era that uh, have been uh, impressed in my mind and my heart. Isn't that in- uh, that's so interesting? Because one of the filmmakers. Well, Kevin Phillips, who I spoke to yesterday, one of his, I think it was his editor or cinematographer, he chose The Great Dictator, the, the Chaplin film. Yes, yes, yes. And That's a great choice. It's a great yes. film. Um, so, no, they're great choices. It's interesting that he and you didn't choose a film from the last 30 or 40 years. Oh, right. <laughs> you know. Yes. That speaks yes. Much. Maybe you should make a silent film, Teresa. Oh, oh, uh, yes, that's, uh, that's very possible. <laughs> okay. Then I wouldn't have to deal with sound issues, but yeah. maybe just music. Just music. Well, yeah. no, because your choice of music, or you always have wonderful classical music in your film, so I think... Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eisenstein had uh, a great music, too, in his films, uh, so... And, and most of silent films have uh, music. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, that would be, and, and then make it in black and white. Yes, black and white, modern technology, um, a beautiful yeah. classical music soundtrack, and a silent film. Yeah, that would there work. There you go. Brilliant. Maybe, maybe I could do. Uh, now that you say, one of the men that I would like to interview uh, doesn't speak English. There you are. Perfect. <laughs> so instead of asking him questions, I can silent that part. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Therese. Thank you so much for that. As, as always, I could talk to you for hours. Thank um, you. Thank you. The same here. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be part of your podcast. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be in your fabulous uh, festivals. I miss them terribly, but I know... We'll uh, get back to them to well, yes. see everybody in vivo and uh, to uh, one day to hug and to kiss and to share a uh, brilliant uh, work that you do with Dan. Thank you, uh, you're, uh, you're You're really one of a kind, bright and warm and organized and everything you do is really fantastic. And I thank you for allowing my film to be on your platform. You're more than welcome. The truth is you make beautiful films, so your films are lovely. And we <laughs> truly appreciate the time and effort you put in to come to our festivals. And God willing, um, it's looking likely that Valencia in October is going to happen. So let's hope okay. and pray that we all get yes. together again. Thanks so much for your yes. time. Thank you, thank you, Steve. A big hug and a kiss to, uh, to you and Dan. Yeah, thank you as well. Same for you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.